What happens when you doubt because you believe something about God all your life? Maybe your parents taught it to you, maybe a church taught it to you, and yet you come across a passage of Scripture or you come across a person that challenges what you've always believed or something that you've always thought. Or maybe there is something that is true, and yet you see somebody who has taught you that truth, and yet in their life, all of a sudden, something blows apart, and something happens in their life where they go down the moral tubes, and you're left with your hero now falling off the white horse, and you begin to doubt, well, I wonder if it didn't work for them, is it really even true at all? What does God have to say to those of us when we doubt the most basic things about what we believe? I'd like for you to look with me at the book of Matthew, chapter 3. Today we're going to look at a guy who knew Jesus, who preached Jesus, and then who doubted Jesus. John the Baptist had an extraordinary life from the very beginning. In fact, even before the beginning, if you're familiar with how his parents were told that he was going to come into being, this couple that was old and kind of like Abraham and Sarah, they were past the age of childbearing, and yet God says to Zechariah, he said, you are going to have a son, and he is going to be the one who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. In fact, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And we see that when Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes into John the Baptist's mother's presence. John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb for joy. John the Baptist, even before he's born, is rejoicing at Jesus Christ. And then after he's born, being the son of a priest, he would have been expected to be a priest and to minister in the temple. And yet, here in Matthew 3, when we're introduced to John's ministry, you see John doing anything but what the established norm would have expected of him. He doesn't minister as a priest and in the temple, but rather as a prophet in the desert. Look at chapter 3. Let's read the first few verses there together. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John was an unusual person. He's always portrayed in movies as kind of a, a crazy person. He's always kind of a hairy, wild guy, a lot like Mike Martin looks. Mike is with us here today. And Mike probably sounds a lot like... Uh, Mike, are you in here? What do you do? Just say good morning and then leave? Oh, there he is. Okay. Tell us to repent in a real loud, deep voice. You see? He's the guy that could do it. When you think about a John the Baptist, or you think about an Elijah of old, uh, Mike comes to mind always to me. And uh, this is the way people viewed 
John the Baptist. He was not doing what everybody thought he would do. He should have been named after his dad, and he wasn't. He was named John. He should have been a priest, and he wasn't. He was a prophet. He should have had a priestly garb, but instead he wears this uh, camel's garment, camel's hair, leather belt. He should have eaten the, the choicest meat in Israel, which is the food that the priests ate left over from the sacrifice. And instead, look what John gets, locusts and wild honey. John was outside of the established norm because he was introducing something outside of the established norm. He was introducing something, and yet it was promised a long time ago. When John came screaming in the desert that the kingdom of God is near, there was nobody that said, John, what do you mean? What's the kingdom of God? Every living Jew at that time would have understood exactly what John meant when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is near. Repent goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30. It says that if you want God's best for you, you must be a nation that repents. And John says, you want the kingdom? You need to repent. The kingdom of God is near. Everybody would have understood from the very same passage we read of Daniel, in Daniel, uh, promised that the Son of Man would come, that the Messiah would come, and would usher in God's kingdom, that a descendant of King David would rule on David's throne in Jerusalem over an eternal kingdom. Everybody would have understood this. It was a kingdom that was expected that the Messiah would come in, would wipe out all the political oppression that there had been, and set up the kingdom of God on earth. But John also had another message to preach. We've talked about this one. John the Baptist's message is what you might call the Old Testament prophet's dilemma, because the Old Testament promised a couple of different things about the Messiah. The first we've mentioned, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it talks about Messiah being the reigning king, but there's also another part of the promise, and that is that the Messiah is going to be the suffering servant. And John also said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you had this conflict here between the message of who the Messiah was going to be. In fact, some people thought that there might be two Messiahs. Because how could the Messiah come and reign forever and yet at the same time die for our sins? It was, it was confusing. And so what did they do back in those days when you couldn't harmonize the scripture? You pick whichever one you like. They didn't understand how a reigning king could reign forever and also die, so they took the dying part, the suffering part, and kind of scooted that under the rug, and they held up the Messiah as king as the one that they looked forward to. Even John himself preached this. Listen a little further down in Matthew 3. Look at verse 11. John said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but... He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is an expectation of the kingdom, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to clean house. He's going to take everybody that's not believing in him and it's going to head them off to unquenchable fire in the illustration. And those who are his, they're going to gather them in. John was expecting and preaching 
the kingdom. Jesus came to John, was baptized, and from that point on, after John heard the words of God the Father, uh, and through the saw the vision of the, the, the dove coming down and light on Christ and saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. From that point on, John began to have fewer and fewer followers, and Christ began to have more and more. This bothered some of John's disciples, so they came to him and said, hey, this guy whom you said he's the one, he's getting more disciples. They're baptizing more disciples than you are. And John said, don't worry about that. That is part of the plan. He must increase, I must de decrease, my joy is complete. John's job was done. He had prepared the nation. He had told them, if you want the kingdom, you've got to repent. He had pointed to Jesus Christ. He baptized Jesus Christ. He pointed to Christ and says, that's the one. He must increase. I must decrease. John's job was over. And yet I'm not sure that John knew how much he was going to decrease. Shortly after this, Herod married his brother's wife or ex-wife. And this was against the law against the, uh, the Old Testament law. And John freely spoke out about this and told Herod that he was in sin. He says that it's wrong. And so Herod did what any good political person would do. When you got somebody uh, defaming your image, you take them and you put them in prison. And John was imprisoned at a place called Machaerus. And this is Machaerus from the air. It's this little uh, raised spot right here. This is in the wilderness of Judea, ironically. Well, actually, it's on the Jordanian side. But it is in the same wilderness area where John was preaching, generally speaking. And you're probably familiar with the story that took place. It was in this castle or this fortress. John was imprisoned there for probably over a year before uh, Herod had him beheaded. And it was sometime during this year that John began to question. John began to doubt. Now, obviously, John was no stranger to solitude. In fact, having lived in the desert most of his life, he probably preferred it. But being in the prison in Machaerus was far different than being in the, uh, in the desert. It made being in the desert seem like New Year's Eve on Times Square. There was no day or night in the dungeon. There was no fresh breeze. There was no honey, not even a locust to chew on. Just damp, cold, quiet stones. You're in Matthew 3. Turn a few chapters to Matthew 11. Time passes. Jesus goes about his ministry. And John is imprisoned all this time. He was imprisoned over a year before Herod had him beheaded. And some point during that time, while Christ's ministry was in full swing, we read what happened starting in uh, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now when John, oh, let's see, verse 2, sorry. When John in prison heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Isn't that phenomenal? That the one who leapt in the womb for Jesus Christ, that the one who lived and denied himself what was rightly his as the son of a priest, 
that the one who saw the Holy Spirit descend in the form of a dove, that the one who undoubtedly knew without any doubt in his mind that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, after some time by himself in this prison, would send to Christ and say, are you the Christ? Or should we keep looking? Keston College published a letter sometime before the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was written by a Christian man named Alexander. Alexander led a Christian discussion group for students on Moscow's uh, State University, and he was put in prison back before, obviously, when the Soviet Union was in business. Um, this was illegal. He was put in a Soviet prison for seven years. And he wrote a letter to Gorbachev and asked that he be uh, ex uh, executed. He says he believes that it's, it's a sin to commit suicide. He didn't want to commit suicide, but he, he had not received a letter or a visit from a Christian in five years. And he said, he wrote, quote, I know it's a sin to commit suicide, but I'm so lonely, I wish to ask you have me executed by firing squad. This had a good ending, though. Um, the, the letter was published. It was read. Immediately, prayers were sent up. Letters were written to him, arrived at his camp. And when Margaret Thatcher heard about the case, she interceded with Gorbachev, and Alexander was released. But this didn't happen with John. He sent word out to Jesus Christ himself. Are you the one? So it's not hard to understand why John was beginning to doubt Jesus. John did everything he should have done. He prepared the way. He pointed people to Jesus Christ instead of himself. He taught the truth that when Messiah came, he would clean house. But instead, Jesus Christ seemed to be doing none of these things. Instead, he was doing acts of mercy. Instead, he was doing miracles of healing, not judgment. In fact, Matthew doesn't state it, but Luke, in the parallel passage to this, makes this statement. Luke says that the people, the Jews of the nation, were saying about Jesus Christ, quote, a great prophet has arisen among us. And this report went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district, and the disciples of John reported him about all these things. And then Luke goes on to say what Matthew records, are you the one or should we look for someone else? The nation says he's a great prophet. John's disciples report this to John and tell him everything that's happening. And John must have thought a great prophet has arisen. So which is he? Is he the great prophet or is he the Messiah? And he begins to doubt. Why am I in prison if he is the Messiah? This is not much of a kingdom. And if you think about it, logically, if John began to doubt Jesus, then this also meant that John began to doubt himself. Because if John had thought he was the forerunner of the Messiah and Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, then John has missed his calling in life. He should have been the priest. He should have done what everybody expected him to do. But instead, his life has been misdirected and he has been screaming lies. It's interesting, as this is written, the way Matthew wrote it in the original language, John asks as far as emphasis, you or another. Literally, it's written, you are the coming one, or another should we wait for. The emphasis is very heavy. Is it you or is it another? 
I read about a guy up in Pennsylvania some years ago who tried to sue God. His name was Donald Drusky. He blamed God for failing to bring justice against a former employer that Drusky had. And the lawsuit read like this, quote, Defendant God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely serious wrongs which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. He actually filed this. What did Drusky want from God? Drusky wanted God to make him young again, to make him a great guitar player, to resurrect his mom and his pet pigeon. Figured if he wins a lawsuit, this is what he wants from God. And Drusky said that according to the federal rules of civil procedure, if God doesn't show up in court, God loses by default. Well, the district judge threw the case out, of course. But this is the kind of mindset that we have when we have false expectations. This guy expected that God was going to do exactly what, what this guy thought God should do. And when God didn't do it, Drusky wants to sue God. There's something wrong with God rather than with Drusky. The guy's a good example of our first principle that we see very clearly from the life of John here. That is, that doubt can be caused by unrealistic expectations. You've got unrealistic expectations about God, about the Word of God, about what it teaches. If you've got unrealistic expectations about God, when that doesn't happen, you're going to begin to doubt what you believe. John struggled with his own sermon. How can the Messiah die for sins and also bring in the kingdom? Nobody understood how this could be harmonized prior to Jesus Christ being resurrected. Jesus Christ can die for our sins, be resurrected, and then reign as Messiah forever. Well, that makes sense to us, but nobody in Jesus' day understood it. Remember when Jesus told his disciples he began to teach them up there at Caesarea Philippi? Jesus, uh, Peter told Jesus, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, you got it. And then he began to teach them, and now the Son of Man must die. What did Peter do? Say, no. Took Jesus aside. Said, let, me, let me set you straight on this. You know, I've read Daniel, Jesus. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to reign forever over the kingdom. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, you're not supposed to die. Nobody expected it. And even after Jesus did die and then rose from the dead, yet the disciples didn't know yet, Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples, and the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus walking with them. He says, what's on your mind? And he says, well, you're the only one who haven't heard. And he went on to tell them, he says, Jesus of Nazareth was a mighty prophet, causing just a prophet. He says, we were, the, we were expecting that he would redeem Israel. And, and Jesus rebukes them and says, don't you understand from the scriptures that the Christ first had to suffer and then enter his glory? See, nobody understood it, even though the Old Testament clearly taught both. Nobody could harmonize that until after the resurrection. John couldn't, Peter didn't, the disciples didn't, nobody. It didn't click with anybody. And I think for you and me, we tend to do the same thing 
in our lives today when, when there are parts of the Scripture that we don't understand or parts of it that we don't like or that we can't harmonize. We'll take the parts we do like and we'll live by those and the parts we don't like we'll push under the rug. And we will ignore the cross that this life requires us to be faithful, requires us to suffer for Jesus Christ. And if there is suffering, we think, well, that can't be God's will. And so we'll head off off the track and head in the direction that we think is God's will for us that doesn't involve any pain at all. And when it doesn't happen that way, we doubt what we believe uh, is true. One woman wrote to J. Vernon McGee and said this, Our preacher says that on Easter Jesus simply fainted on the cross, that he didn't die, that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? J. Vernon McGee wrote her back and said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days and then see what happens. (laughs) Walt Allman says that that you need to doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. If the Word of God says something, doubt your doubts before you're going to doubt your beliefs. But we're quicker to believe our doubts many times. Why? Because we have unrealistic expectations. How did Jesus respond to John's doubts? What, how did Jesus basically strengthen John's faith in light of his doubting? It's key, because it's how you and I can have our faith strengthened when we doubt. Look back, Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered, answering those uh, disciples whom John sent. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What kind of answer is that? I think John just wanted a yes or no, right? But instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus reminds John of the Scriptures. He is basically paraphrasing what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Just look at the screen. The eyes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. That is in the context of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And John the Baptist, being very familiar with Isaiah, because Isaiah spoke of John, would have clearly understood Jesus is taking him to the Scriptures and saying, don't doubt, remember what the Scriptures said, exactly what the Messiah was prophesied to do, I'm doing. But there's a more subtle form of encouragement, too, and you have to look at the context. Uh, of Isaiah 35. And we've got it up on the screen. I read to you verse 5 and 6, but I want to also read the verses that come before and after that. Look at the screen, Isaiah 35, starting at verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with the rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then down in verse 7 it says, And the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And a highway, and a highway will be there, and a roadway. And it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. How is that significant? Well, remember where John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. Remember where John the Baptist was imprisoned in the wilderness. What is Isaiah 35 talking about? It's talking about a time when that wilderness will become lush. And he gives a couple of examples. First of all, he talks about the wilderness. And this is what it looks like today and what it, looks like, what it also looked like in John's time. This is the wilderness of Judea. This is the huge, vast, barren wasteland. And now look what we're told it will look like. This is the plain of Sharon. That's the Mediterranean there to the right. The next one shows Mount Carmel. Notice the contrast. John would have been very familiar with these places, very familiar with these images. And what Jesus is saying is, look, yes, now, John, you are in prison in the wilderness. But one day, this wilderness, when the kingdom comes, is going to look like this. It's going to be lush. Now you are in literally the wilderness of doubt. But one day, it's going to be lush. Jesus was using even the geography of that day to encourage John to hang in there and to not lose heart. You see, if responded to correctly, doubt can be a catalyst for a stronger faith. If you take it to the Word of God. Henry Drummond said, We are born questioners. Every child is full of every kind of question about everything that moves and shines and changes in the little world in which it lives. That is the incipient doubt in the nature of man. Respect doubt for its origin. It is an, ine an inevitable thing. It is not a thing to be crushed. It is a part of man as God made him. Doubt is the prelude of knowledge. Just this last week, one of my daughters, we were driving across Lake Louisville. She asked me, she says, Daddy, how do we know that God is real and not just something that man made up? How would you answer? I had to think about it before I answered her. I think what Drummond said is right. Even in the context of a child that's been brought up that has never been a day, she hadn't heard the gospel. There's this natural part of her that says, you know what? How do I know this is real? I think your attitude is important. Are you doubting God with contempt? Or are you doubting, seeking to really know the truth? Are you questioning in order to be confirmed of what you know? Are you questioning in order to blow it out of the water? I think that's where a healthy doubt and an unhealthy doubt exist. Brother Lawrence said that when we are in doubt, God will never fail to give light when we have no other plan than to please him and to act in love for him. 
And if you think about it logically, if the whole purpose of our trials is to test our faith, that faith is going to be tested. And when what we believe gets tested, how can there not be, at times, doubt? But how you treat that doubt, if you go right back to the Scripture and, and let that confirm your belief, just as Jesus took John back to the source and said, don't doubt, but rather remember what the Word of God says. Jesus' baby brother, Jude, had this to say in his letter, chapter 1, well, Jude 1. He said, have mercy on some who are doubting. Interesting. Jude was a doubter all the life of Christ until the resurrection. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Undoubtedly, Jesus had had mercy on him, on Jude, and on James, and the other brothers. To have mercy is to show kindness or concern. Jesus didn't slam John for expressing his doubts, but he strengthened his faith by affirming him from the scriptures that Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, we won't read it, but Matthew goes on to say that in front of the crowd, Jesus commends John rather than uh, saying you shouldn't be like him. But one thing that Jesus does say after he answered those who came to him, he answered them and said, tell John, here's what's happening, remember Isaiah 35. He said in verse 6, Matthew 11, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. What he meant by that was simply this, and it's a challenge to us too, because you and I, like John, have a limited perspective of God's infinite plan. We can see here and now, but we can't see how here and now works itself out in God's infinite plan. We've got his promises, but we don't have a picture of how those promises come to be fulfilled totally in our lives. We've got to trust him. Uh, rather than stumble over Christ's methods, we trust Christ in his methods. This is what Jesus means. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. I may not be doing what you think I should be doing, but I am God, and you're going to have to trust me. The benefit of the doubt is that if you respond to it correctly, it will actually strengthen your faith. So use doubt as a, as a means, as a fuel, to take you back to the Word of God and there drink deeply in truth and doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Let's pray. Lord, how encouraging it is for each of us today to see a great man like John the Baptist struggle with what we struggle with, to be absolutely sure without any doubt in our minds that you are God, and yet at the same time, when we look at our circumstances, when we look at the, um, the criticism of the world, there are times, Lord, honestly, that we need affirmation of what we believe. And I pray that in those times, in those vulnerable times, that we would not respond like Eve in the garden and allow the devil to take us away from God's word to where we have to lean on our own understanding. But instead, Lord, we would, we would read your word. We would seek your word that our doubts may be diminished and our faith may be increased. 
Lord, I pray for any who are here today who are doubting the very fundamental things they believe. Lord, that you take them to your word and there encourage them that in spite of their circumstances, they can believe what they believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.